So today we're in part three of our series, uh, Meals with Jesus, where we're looking at some of the interesting uh, conversations that occurred around a dinner table uh, with Jesus. Uh, this is a theme in 31 years of ministry I've never really studied before, but I have found it fascinating looking at just the amazing lessons that Jesus taught his disciples when they sat down to have dinner together. And so one of the things that I hope to uh, inspire in this series is for each of you to recognize how impactful mealtime really can be if we don't squander the opportunity. I want you to see that sharing a meal with another person really is a big deal. And it's not about the quality of the food, it's about the quality of the conversation. Someone that you share a meal with is, is likely going to be your friend, or at least well on the way to becoming your friend. In fact, the word companion, when you break that word down, uh, com means together, uh, panis means bread, so that when you break bread together with another person, you become their companion. Uh, food is a connector. Uh, it, it, it brings people together, it makes friends and associates. Uh, it can evoke deep discussion or it can result in deep belly laughter, right? We've had a lot of good conversations, a lot of fun around the day, uh, dinner table. For families, uh, dinner time can be a time of instruction, of reflection, or of simply just unpacking the events of the day. Uh, business people have realized that the dinner table can be a place where a, a business deal gets closed or you meet a potential new client. So what's my point? My point is this, that we need to be intentional with our meal times. I think it's one of those things that we just kind of let happen and we don't, we don't pay attention. In his book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam reveals that there's been a 33% decrease in families eating together over the last three decades. And sadly, more than half of those that are meeting together as a family to have dinner, 45% are watching TV while they eat. You're missing a golden opportunity to just talk. There's been a, a significant decrease in the amount of time that people spend entertaining friends. You know, when you study the New Testament, especially the Gospel of Luke, you're going to notice that, just pay attention in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal throughout most of the book. Because meals, uh, if you study the New Testament, they're more than food, they're social occasions. They represent friendship and community and welcome. So I'm hoping that this series will cause you to evaluate uh, how you have your family mealtimes. Do you sit down at a table together to have a meal? If you don't, I'm encouraging you, start sitting down Reestablish the family dinner time. Eliminate electronic distractions so that you can actually talk to the people with whom you're eating. Ask yourself, do you see mealtime as a time to connect and to share and to communicate? Or is it just a time to scarf down your food and get moving on to something else? Um, I really want to encourage you to slow down, enjoy your family mealtimes together. Uh, parents, uh, this is so important. Set a meal time. Just say 5.30, 6, 6.30, whatever it's going to be, and then just make it a part of your normal routine. Build this into the rhythm of your life. Learn the names of your kids. Uh, 
it's, you know, so often we're like ships passing in the night, right? I mean, everybody's going their own way. Everybody's doing their own thing. Say, well, I don't have any kids in the house anymore. Well, then I still encourage you to sit down at a real table with real plates and real glassware and real silverware and have a real meal with real conversation with the person that you live with. Get off the couch, shut off the TV, put your phones away and talk. Amen. All right. So now Jesus shared many teachable moments over a meal, and today's text is no exception. You have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 36. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had been invited, uh, who had invited him saw this, he said to him, if this, were, if this man were a prophet, he would know who he is touching or who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Help us understand, Lord, uh, just the lessons you would have us to learn as we study this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we see Jesus once again having a meal with uh, some Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were the super religious uh, Jews of the day. They, they loved their laws. They loved their rules and their rituals. They felt that they could earn God's favor uh, by their behavior and that they could, they could, if they did enough things right, that God was going to be uh, happy with them. And so Jesus spent many conversations pointing out to them that regardless of how many things they did right, they were still sinners in need of God's forgiveness. Uh, and in his grace, but sadly, most of them just didn't get it. It didn't connect with them. So at this particular occasion, Jesus is having a, a meal. It's probably a large dinner. Probably many people were present. There were several Pharisees, probably many of the disciples were there, and then just some other people that were there as well. And at some point in the meal, a woman of the city who was a sinner joined the party. Now, I probably don't have to work really hard to connect the dots in your mind as to what this lady's profession likely was. It's one of the oldest uh, in history. Um, so can you imagine the horror the Pharisees had when they saw her walk into their dinner? And they probably looked at her like, what is she doing here? Who invited her? Who let her in? Now, homes in this particular day often had rooms that, that, that kind of opened to a courtyard, and the courtyard was often kind of open out to the street. So people walking down the street could look into the courtyard, and they could kind of see the people who were sitting there uh, having a meal. So it was pretty common in that day if somebody was walking down the street to see what's going on and stick their head and say, hey, how you guys doing? Uh, you know, I hope everything's going good. And well, this lady uh, heard that Jesus was there, and she was walking by, and she came in. But not only did she come in, she got pretty intimate with Jesus here. Her tears are dropping on his feet. She started to dry his feet with her hair. Then she started kissing his feet and then rubbing them down with perfume. Now, that was likely just as awkward 2,000 years ago as it would be today, right? Uh, that's kind of inappropriate behavior in any generation. But especially in this generation, that was a no-no. 
And she was really going beyond what anybody would think was, was normal behavior. Um, the reality is this lady doesn't belong here. Uh, this is a meeting of religious people and disciples and Jesus. And, and what she's doing here clearly seems to be inappropriate, especially if you're doing it to Jesus, the son of God. But if you'll notice, Jesus didn't stop her, did he? He didn't say anything. He could have. So can you imagine what was going through the minds of the Pharisees and the disciples who were sitting there? So it just confirmed what Luke had written earlier in his gospel that Jesus is a friend of sinners and he came eating and drinking to show that sinners can be a part of the kingdom of God. Tax collectors and prostitutes and murderers are not outside of God's amazing grace. If you think about it, Jesus, when he talked to the woman at the well, he didn't scold her when he asked her for a drink. He had compassion on her. He had compassion on this lady who was rubbing her hair on his feet. He showed her grace. Our instincts are to distance ourselves from people like that, right? Our instincts are to kind of give people a stiff arm here because people might accuse us of being sympathetic to their lifestyle or worse, endorsing it. But when you study the life of Jesus, you'll find that he ate with people like that. He would have dinner with them. He wasn't embarrassed to be with them. He shared meals and conversations with riffraff and, and drunks and prostitutes and the mentally ill and the broken and the needy. In general, Jesus spent time with people whose life was a mess. And he loved them. He gave his life for them. I'm glad he did. But for the Pharisees, on the other hand, they, uh, this just didn't fit in their picture of what uh, being godly was supposed to be, what it was really supposed to be to be a religious person. And so Jesus just didn't fit the, fit the bill here. He didn't look like any kind of Messiah. So we pick it up in verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into, Simon the Pharisee, I came into your house you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this man that, that even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it was customary for the host at that time to greet their guest when they came into their house, you know, with a little kiss on the, on the cheek. That was very common to offer water. Uh, for, so they could wash their feet. Because, you know, they're walking in sandals. It's really dusty out there, and your feet are filthy and dirty and cracked and whatever. And it gives you some water for your feet. But Simon the Pharisee here, he does neither of these things. He's not being a very good host. But instead, this party-crashing prostitute who wasn't even invited has become a better host than Simon. Look what Jesus said. He says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears, and I wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I entered, she's kissed my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. 
She is the one who welcomed me, Simon, not you. She was a better host than you. So what's the difference here between Simon, the Pharisee, and this woman? I mean, to the onlookers, it'd be obvious. I mean, one is a righteous, respectable man, and the other is a dreadful, sinful woman who sells herself for money. But Jesus sees something completely different. When Simon confronted Jesus, Jesus didn't defend his actions, but instead he explained hers. Look what he said in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So here again, we see Jesus using this occasion as a teachable moment. Listen, if someone forgives you, you'll love them. If someone gives you a lot, you'll love them a lot. Even Simon concedes this here, right? So clearly, this woman loves Jesus a lot. Her audacity, her tears, her affection to Jesus make it clear that she was a broken person, ashamed of what she had done, sorry for her sins. And Jesus looks to her and with confidence says, your sins are forgiven. But what about Simon? Simon hasn't even shown Jesus the normal courtesies that a host would show a normal house guest. Simon thinks he's gonna find favor with God because he keeps the rules. But again, Jesus is pointing out the fact that it's not by keeping the rules that you find favor with God. You actually need to love Jesus because you are forgiven. Salvation is a gift given by God to undeserving sinners. It's not something achieved by religious living or good behavior. And aren't you glad? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. My friends, you can do nothing to earn righteousness, to earn favor from God, to earn your salvation. It, it has nothing to do with doing more good than bad. God is not going to use that scale to get you into heaven. It is only by the gift, by the grace of God that you receive by faith. And the woman in our story here, she recognized who Jesus is and she knows who she is. She realizes she's a sinner and she falls at his feet in sorrow for her sinfulness. Simon the Pharisee, on the other hand, he's still trying to prove to Jesus that, hey, I'm a pretty good guy. And Jesus was not having it. And Jesus pointed out the error in his way. Jesus could see the heart of the woman, and he could see the heart of Simon. And he was far more disgusted by what he saw in Simon's heart than what he saw in the woman's heart. Now this story is loaded with application, teachable moments. But one thing that jumps out to me is the fact that we need to be careful when we look down on others for their life circumstances, right? I mean, we could have very easily said, oh, look at this woman, look what she's done. Do you know who she, do you not even realize what she does? Do you know what her profession is? Jesus didn't do that at all. 
we, we tend to draw conclusions based upon what we see, but the reality is we can't see the hearts. Sure, they may be terrible sinners, but aren't we all? If you were to ask me which character I would rather be, I would rather play the role of the prostitute in this story than the religious leader, wouldn't you? Jesus demonstrated grace and compassion to this woman. He modeled for us how to treat other people. He didn't scold her. He didn't humiliate her. He didn't condemn her. She knew who she was and he knew who she was. And she was broken. So the issue here isn't just how they see themselves, how the woman saw herself and how Simon saw himself, but it really is, 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 is the fact that Simon just thinks he's better than her because of his behavior. So Simon doesn't really see his need for forgiveness because he thinks he's a pretty good guy. He doesn't see where he really needs any forgiveness. The woman knows what she has done and she is broken. She knows her life is a mess. Simon thinks he's got it all figured out. She sees Jesus as someone who accepts her anywhere and that triggers an overwhelming outpouring of love towards Jesus. My friends, if we're going to reach this generation with the gospel, we need to be like Jesus and we need to extend grace to those who speak a different language, have a different skin color, vote for a different party, and live a different lifestyle. We need to extend grace because we depend on God's grace. And we are all broken people in a broken world. The church is called to bring light into darkness. But sadly, it seems like many times we find ourselves running scared. And we stay away from the darkness of society. We hide in gated communities and behind locked doors with our first-rate security systems. When we should be perhaps hitting the streets with the gospel just like they did in the New Testament church. We're to be in the community, not to be insulated from the community. Most of you are well aware of Starbucks and you probably have your favorite drink. Mine is a venti blondros with extra cream. About as boring as you can get. There are Starbucks all over the world. But you know what? I don't think it's the quality of their coffee or their low prices <laughs> that draw people in. No, that's not it. Starbucks is known because they have become a third place. Starbucks realized that people were looking for a cozy social atmosphere that would serve as a refuge in this world. Someplace different than home and different at work that they could go and find a place where they could sit down and have a cup of coffee or have a conversation. And the price of admission is just a $4 cup of coffee. And so that's what has been their secret sauce. Church, if we're going to reach Southwest Florida with the gospel, we must learn biblical hospitality. We need to create space for people who are trying to figure life out. And there's a lot of people trying to figure life out right now, right? Church should be a place where sinners can come to investigate what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We need to be welcoming and kind and friendly 
and generous. You know, at the Venture Cares Mobile Market, it is a judgment-free zone. We don't make income threshold a requirement to get food. If somebody comes and says they need food, we give it to them. We don't care if they're wearing fancy jewelry, if they're driving a nice car, if it looks like they're gaming the system. We don't care. They're a person who needs a friend. They're, they're somebody who needs to experience the love and the grace of God, and we're going to give it to them. Amen? Hospitality involves welcoming and listening and paying attention to people. It's about building community. And this is really how the early church was built. The connection between hospitality and the advancement of the early church is unmistakable. Early Christians would open their homes to other Christians who were traveling in their city. In fact, they depended upon that heavily uh, as, as they would go from city to town and, and city to city and town to town. They would invite, the early church would invite strangers in because there weren't hotels on every corner and, and things, it was a dangerous time. And so you would just welcome Christian strangers into your house, give them a meal, give them a place to sleep while they were on their way. And they didn't have money back then to really afford that kind of uh, staying in inns anyhow. So it was very common for the early church to invite early Christians in, but not only that, but also to invite non-believers into their homes to share a good meal and a, conversa a conversation. Hospitality was a central role in the early church, especially as these early believers were trying to create a new identity in a hostile culture. So early Christians shared meals and resources. They opened their homes to strangers. And even the outside world noticed this about these odd Christians. Peter put it like this in his letter. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality seems to have fueled the growth of the early church. The early missionaries, they found lodging and provision as they traveled for the sake of the gospel. Paul and his companions lodged with other Christian families throughout their missionary journeys. And so Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, he said this in Romans 12, 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. So what is hospitality? Hospitality can be defined as, and I quote, the quality or disposition of receiving and treating guests and strangers in a warm, friendly, generous way. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated hospitality literally means love of strangers. Hospital and hospitality both come from the same Latin noun, hospice, which means high prices. No, I'm kidding. It doesn't. <laughs> hospice, which means one who provides lodging for a guest or visitor. So hospitality was a highly regarded virtue in ancient times. And I think as the world grows more hostile to believers, we may see an increased need for hospitality in our world. Understand that hospitality goes beyond entertaining guests with a nice meal. We have kind of changed the word hospitality into the word entertaining. And hospitality in our culture many times is, is more about uh, having a nice house and using the right charger with the right plate and having the right silverware and the right glasses on the table and having the right candle that, so that it smells right. And, and those things are all fine, but that's entertainment. 
That's, that, that, that's entertaining guests, and that's a part of it. But hospitality goes beyond entertaining. It, it, it involves offering people a safe haven, a place where they can get rest and feel refreshed and enjoy a good meal. We saw a lot of this during Hurricane Ian. And many of you out here today uh, uh, received hospitality from people in the church who opened their home so that you could have a place to sleep or a warm meal or some air conditioning to enjoy. Um, so I think this needs to be something that we do regularly, that we focus on serving and encouraging and giving value to others. When you look at the ministry years of Jesus, he and his disciples depended on the hospitality of others. So when was the last time you demonstrated hospitality? I'm not talking about going out to dinner with friends, which I think is great. I'm talking about when was the last time you opened your home to somebody in need? Perhaps invited a non-believing family or friend over for a good meal and warm conversation. Some of you may feel led or called to foster a child or to invite a foreign exchange student to live in your home. Some of you may be able to lend out a spare room in your house to someone who's going through a tough time. Perhaps sharing some space with a young family or college student who's struggling. You know, there are many ways that we can extend hospitality. And can I say, you just never know who you might be serving when you open yourself up to hospitality. In Hebrews, the Bible says, chapter 13, verse two, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You just never know who God may send to your door. But hospitality flows from a heart of genuine love for other people. Jesus modeled this kind of love. He extended grace to a woman most religious leaders would have written off as a lost cause. Let me ask you, do you have any lost causes in your life? Anybody you've written off that maybe God would say, maybe you need to just extend them some grace, maybe an invitation to dinner, maybe offer them a place to rest or a place to find shelter, because you just never know. That may be all that's needed for them to turn their life around. My guess is that this night, this prostitute, received the grace of Jesus and his forgiveness. And I guarantee you, her life was forever changed. My friends, you and I could do the same thing. And maybe that's the message we learned from this meal with Jesus, is the fact that maybe God's calling us to be more hospitable, to open our homes, to open our lives, to be more gracious and loving to people who are kind of a lost cause, who don't have it all together, that use an advocate, a friend. So that's my challenge to you this week to let's practice 
gracious hospitality, biblical hospitality, and show others love. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of Jesus. God, his tremendous love for people, especially those that others consider outcast, that others would consider outside the reach of his grace, and yet he loved them, cared for them, and forgave their sins. God, I pray that you would help us to be a church that has that kind of hospitality, that kind of grace, that loves people in spite of what they've done and who they, who, who they may be and the label they may carry. May we be a genuine, loving community that cares for lost people. And God, may it be our love for them that draws them into a love relationship with you, that they would learn that they can be forgiven of much. So God, help us. Help us as we hit the streets at the mobile market to love people. Help us to not overlook the meal times that we share and be more intentional. Help us to reach out to those lost causes in our lives who could just use a shoulder to cry on, a helping hand, or maybe a place to sleep. So God, may we, like the early church, learn to be hospitable. Father, we love you. We praise you and thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.